So guys, welcome to Grace Life. How you guys doing this morning? You guys awake? Yeah? Okay, cool. Um, all right, I don't think I've ever done this with a new thing. There's a QR code that should be up on the projector. Yep, there you go. Um, that if you guys want to follow along with the uh, sermon, um, I think there's also announcements and stuff on there. You guys can go ahead and take a picture of that, scan it. Um, I'm awkward talking, I'm sorry. Um, well, anyway, we're glad you guys are here, man. If this is your first time, welcome to Grace Life. Um, hopefully someone got to hang out and talk with you. Um, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and share a Grace Life welcome. Oh. Whoa, okay. It says, uh, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin... To all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers her welcome. That's kind of our welcome here, and it's kind of our heart, just as a congregation, to be able to love on you guys. Um, obviously, this church has been a huge blessing to me. We've been here for like two years or so, uh, but if this is, this is your first time, we just pray that that is our heart towards you guys, and we love you guys. And uh, that's it. Awkwardness. You're reading the scripture, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Welcome to Grace Life, y'all. Well, good morning. My name is Tommy Clayton, and I am the lead pastor here at Grace Life Church. And on behalf of our staff and our church family, I want to continue the welcome. Um, and to those who are watching from home, I think we're live this morning. Had some challenges earlier, but I think we got that ironed out. So I hope you're Hope we're live and that everybody's able to tune in. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to share God's word, open it up for us this morning. So I want to start by praying, and then we'll read the scriptures together. Okay, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather again and to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, who created us, what our purpose is, what the meaning of all of this is, why we have a hope that's unassailable, a joy that can't ever be threatened, an identity that can't ever be taken away from us. I pray those truths will be deeply impressed on us today. I pray this little break from Romans um, to talk about why we can trust the Bible will be especially helpful to people that on a daily basis either face doubts in their own hearts that rise up that they really don't want to talk to anybody else about. Maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe they feel guilty that they would question, is this really true? Can I really trust this? Is, is this book corrupt? Is it just written by men? Um, has it been added to? Can we trust it? Or whether it's the assaults of, of outside forces, professors, unbelievers, skeptics, scoffers, I pray this would be a helpful two-week study for all of us, Lord. And I pray that it would be meaningful. It wouldn't be boring. It wouldn't be academic or overly... Scholastic, I pray it would be relevant, it would touch us where we live, and we would leave here helped and strengthened and encouraged, Lord. And if we have doubts, I pray they'd be addressed. I pray you would put a rock in the shoe of our doubts, Lord, uh, so that we would question our doubts and not just question Scripture. And thank you for all those you brought today, no doubt. Your sovereign providence brought every single person who's here and every single person watching from home, either live or who will download this message later and watch it at their convenience. I pray you would work powerfully. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard in, in 
in my prayer. We're taking a two-week break from Romans. We do that when I get to the end of every chapter. Right now, we're going through a study in the book of Romans. It's called just that, a journey through Romans, and it's called engage, how to engage with God, how to engage with yourself, really, to know your true self as God created you, fallen in Adam, but redeemed in Christ, and how to engage with one another and how to engage with the world. And when we get to the end of, of, of each chapter, I take a little break, talk about new things, things that have been just cooking around in my heart. Sometimes it's a topical message, sometimes it's from the Old Testament. And I've been thinking about this series for a while, that's why we're going to take two weeks. I want to talk about why we can trust God's Word, why we know that we can trust God's Word, so that's the title of this series, Why You Can Trust the Bible. And we're going to take two weeks to do that because I know myself, and uh, I know I'm not going to be able to cram it all in in just one week, and it will be just too much, like drinking water from a fire hydrant. So we want to take our time, and I want to break it up really into, into two different parts. We're going to look at internal evidence. I know this sounds really technical, so don't check out and say, oh, great, I've came to the university today. No, you haven't. This is a church. We're going to open up God's Word, uh, and, I, and I'm going to preach a sermon. It's not going to be a lecture, but I am going to talk about internal evidences from the Bible. In other words, what can we see from inside Scripture itself that attests that it's true, that it's authoritative, that it's valid, that we can trust it, that it's powerful? And there's also things outside the Bible. I know that gives us the heebie-jeebies. Woo! What do you mean, outside the Bible? Yeah. God knows us. He created us. He was a human once. I mean, Jesus is still a human for, for eternity, right? He knows how humans think. We know that faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. Faith doesn't come through miracles. Faith doesn't come by the carcass of a whale washing up on the Mediterranean beach, and it says Jonah was here carved inside. Faith doesn't come from that, if that did happen. But you know what? Can I be honest? That would strengthen my faith if that happened. Would it yours? That'd be all right. If they found Noah's Ark, and they found DNA from two dinosaurs, and from two, <laughs> that would strengthen my faith. But that's not what produces my faith. And God understands that. And so you know what we have? We have some archaeological discoveries. We have the experience of millions of people from different cultures, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different disciplines, different vocational callings, and all of them, strangely enough, came to Christ different ways. Some of them didn't grow up in a, in a home that taught the Bible. Not, some of them never darkened the, the church door. Some of them uh, found a, a track. Some of them found a book. Some of them were evangelized by their friends. That's validity that this is true, because that's exactly what the Bible said would happen. Amen? So, I'm going to read just two scriptures for today. First one is in Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, listen to me for just a second, okay? I'm going to make a really quick argument, and I know I'm cutting in my sermon time. That's okay. I'll take, I'll take the hit. I love smart devices. I love phones, iPads, tablets, laptops. I use all of them. Any technology that helps me study more efficiently, I use, and I don't feel an ounce of guilt about it. Some people have this, well, you can't use a phone in church to read your Bible. Says who? <laughs> Says who? If you've got a phone with your, a Bible app on it, by all means, use it. The ESV version is what I use, English Standard Version. It's a reliable translation from Greek to English. There's a free ESV app. So if you have a phone, you've got free access to the Bible. If you have a data plan that connects you to the web, I'm sure most of you do. However, I want to say this. I'm also a firm believer in holding God's Word in your hand when you're able, especially at home. Maybe if you get up, maybe you're a morning person, maybe you're a night owl. Sometimes I just want to put my phone down, man. Do you? And I just want to hold, 
hold something tangible. And, and, uh, and I know many of you do too, so I've got an offer to make to you. A really gracious church locally, The Journey, the pastor reached out to me and he said, hey look, we're cleaning up some things here and uh, we've got a lot of like brand new ESV hardback Bibles that are black, they're really pretty, and they're, they're like brand new and uh, we can't use them. So can, any, can anybody in your congregation use them? I said, I don't know, but yes, I'll take them. So he gave us like 120 of those things and we've got them stacked on the back box. As you're walking out, as you walk in, you'll see them back there. That is a free gift to you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And if you don't have an ESV version, by all means, take it. In fact, I'll give you like a minute. If you want to right now, if you want to stand up and go get a copy of the Bible in the back, please be my guest. Nobody's going to... Thank you. There he goes, right there. So, so, hey, nothing's free. Yeah, this, the Bible's free. I mean, many people have died protecting it, preserving it. You know, there's, there's copies of Bibles in museums that have the stains of the blood of the martyrs who were grabbing hold of them, protecting them as they were martyred for their faith and for the scriptures. So go get a copy of that. That's our gift to you. Keep it. Hold on to it. Take it home. Give it to somebody who doesn't have one and follow along today. Okay. Isaiah chapter 44. That's before Jeremiah. If you're... <laughs> See, that's the catch. If you have a hard copy, you can turn to the very beginning and it tells you where all the books are. Isaiah 44, and you can read along up here if you didn't feel compelled to go get a Bible and you don't have a phone. No judgment, man. Judgment-free zone right here. Isaiah 44, we're going to read verses uh, 6 to 8. Is that the verses? Yeah. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, and then one more passage in Hebrews after this. Here we go. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel... And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. We say that every week when we leave, don't we? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. Thank you. There is no rock. I know not any. And God has complete knowledge. So if he says there's no other rock, there's no other rock. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. This would be the, the passage we'll really be focusing on today. And I'm not going to do... You know, every week you show up and I take a passage and I break it down and we go verse by verse, sometimes word for word through those. This is going to be a topical message. I'm going to read this passage and we're just going to launch into the topic of why we can trust the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12 and going through 13. Are you ready? <laughs> Three more seconds. Some of you are mad because those Bibles weren't leather-bound and like soft calfskin. Sorry, it's the cardboard-wrapped kind, but they're still good. Still got the good stuff in there. For the Word of God is living and active. Amen. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Don't you love that? It talks about scripture, and then all of a sudden it says no creature is hidden from his sight. Not its, 
Scripture, but His, because God is speaking to us through the Bible. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. I love that. Amen. Amen. So I hope three things happen uh, this week and next week as, as we talk about the Bible and why you can trust it. Number one, I pray, I'm hoping and I'm praying that this strengthens and builds your confidence in God's Word, that it really is God's Word, that you can trust it, you can build your life on it, you can bank it. It's been corroborated, it's been tested, it's been verified over and over and over. Number two, that this will provide you with a reasonable defense, a re- just a reasonable defense. You don't have to have a PhD to defend the Bible. Number one, all you have to have is a changed life. That's enough. Like the blind man. He said, hey, I don't, know, I, don't know all the, I don't know the mysteries of the universe. All I know is I was blind and now I see. So you go figure it out. That man healed me, right? Jesus changed me. I don't know all the details. He said he would. I trusted him. He said the truth would free me, and it did. So I pray that this would provide you with a reasonable defense so that you can engage. Even if it's at an entry level, you can engage in conversations with people. Not to beat them over the head, not to try and argue them in the kingdom, but to try and address some of their concerns and objections. The Bible says to do that. Always be ready to give an answer or a defense. That word in Greek is apologia. Have you ever heard the word apologetics? That's what that discipline is. It's giving a reason for your belief, for your faith. Always be ready to give an apologia for the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear. Third, that this will put a rock in your shoe of doubt, as I prayed earlier. Now listen, I know everybody gets all holy on Sunday, and we pretend, oh, I've never, never for an instant have I ever doubted the veracity or the authenticity of God's Word. But then we have like a dark night of the soul, right? I mean, I've had them. Maybe you haven't, but your pastor has. I have. I've, 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 I don't know if it was an assault by the enemy or if it was just doubt bowling up in my, in my own untrustworthy heart, but I've had those thoughts before. Man, how do I know I can trust this? And I'm hoping that what we talk about this week and next helps answer some of those questions for you. Even even if you're not truthful about it, even if you don't talk about it, (laughs) deep down in that dark place where you have secret doubts, today's for you and next week is for you, okay? So here we go. Why do Christians believe the Bible is true? Plenty of people have claimed that it's corrupt, that it's just a product of man who is untrustworthy and imperfect, and plenty of other religions have their sacred text and scriptures. Hindus have them. Muslims have them. Just about every religion has them. And men who wrote them and who claim to have spoken for God. Why is our Bible any different? They, by the way, all those people can't be right because the, the doctrines and the practices contradict one another. They can't all be right. Somebody's, somebody's wrong. The Bible makes some remarkable and shocking and astonishing claims for itself. It claims to be inspired by God. That means God breathed. God breathed Scripture. It's the very words of God. God made us rational creatures. He made us in His image. That means we communicate. That means we receive information. And so it makes sense that God would communicate to creatures that bear His image through revelation that's written, oral and written. And He did. It makes remarkable claims. It's inspired. It's inerrant. Have you ever heard that word? That's a 25-cent word. You know what it means? It means without error. Not necessarily the copy you're holding if you got one back there because it's a copy. And it's probably 99.99% accurate. But copyists make errors, transmission make errors. But the original documents as recorded by the apostles and the prophets were without error. 
and infallible. There's another 25 cent word. Infallible means it will never lead you astray. Man, I'm so glad that the Bible makes that claim for itself. If you devote your life to this, it's not going to trick you and deceive you and take you down a, a dangerous and dark path. It's going to bring you back to life. That's what it's going to do. It's going to revive you. And that it's also immutable. There's the last 25 cent word we'll use. You know what that means? Unchanging. You don't have to worry that God's going to change his mind next week and say, oh man, there's a third Peter. I know there's first and second, but, but Peter had some more stuff to say and and maybe they'll find what he said in an archaeological discovery. No, the Bible's finished. It's closed. Anybody adds to it, there's a curse going to be pronounced on them. Anybody takes away from it, there's a curse going to be pronounced on them. I love the way God seals his word. We have everything that God wanted to say to us, and it's not ever going to change. It's not going to lead us astray, and it's without error, and it's his words. But how do we know that? Just because God said it? Is that enough? I mean, the answer should be yes, but God knows us. So we have some other things that really bolster, bolster our confidence in Scripture. No book has been so attacked, so vilified, so maligned, so analyzed, so critiqued, so questioned, so burned as the Bible. And yet here we are, centuries, centuries later, after the Bible was written, and we're not meeting today talking about Aesop's fables, are we? We're not here talking and analyzing a Shakespeare play. We're not here even talking about Lord of the Rings. Those are all good books. <clears throat> Some of them are very good books, and you should read them. But this is the book. This is the greatest book. This is in a category and a class of its very own. And the fact that we're here today studying this is proof. This is what the Puritans called the anvil that has worn out many hammers. They've tried to snuff this out, burn this out, rat this out, and it's still here, and we're reading it. Praise God for that. That in and of itself is proof. You know how many things have been lost, destroyed, throughout the centuries, and here, here we have the Bible. After all the centuries of claims that, ah, oh, this will never last, here we are. Here we are. So, let's put this to the, the test. Let's, let's analyze this and see, see if it stands. Point number one. I'm going to do three points, and I'll be honest with you. I'm not even going to get to the third point today. Some of you, that makes you very happy. Be honest. Come on. <laughs> But man, that third one is so, it's, I'm sorry, it's fun. Archaeological things are so fun because, you know, some archaeologists who are skeptics and unbelieving, they think that there's the Bible and then archaeology is going to correct it, right? And then there's some archaeological discoveries that have been made and we find that, you know what, actually the Bible corrects ar archaeology. The Bible is right all along and Jericho was exactly where the Bible said it was and it was destroyed exactly the way that the Bible says it was destroyed even burned. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get into that later. That's a fun point. We probably won't get to it today. So come back next week, okay? Point number one, personal experience. And by the way, that's the weakest argument outside of the Bible because everyone has an experience. People that are in false religions have an experience. People that are in cults have an experience and they have this life-changing. So that's the weakest, but we can't ignore it. I mean, it is, it is, it has some strength, just not the greatest strength. And the second one is world impact. What good has the Bible done in the world throughout the centuries? A lot of people say it hasn't done any good. In fact, it's been dangerous and damaging and hurtful and abusive and a lot of other stuff. I say baloney. <laughs> Let's look at the history records and see. So, point number one, personal experience. 
Millions of lives have been transformed by this book. I hope that yours is one of them. I know that mine is. My, my life has been completely, radically, irrevocably transformed by this book and by the person this book is talking about, Jesus Christ. Psalm 19, uh, Mike Priest did a great job preaching a sermon on this a few weeks back, maybe a few months back. Time flies, but you should go to our website and, and get that message. It's incredible. He preached on the last part of Psalm 19. I'm just going to read three verses from it because it says, it tells us three things that the law of God, the testimony, the scripture does. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Shakespeare ever revive your soul? Lord of the Rings ever revive your soul? No. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I know a lot of things give us knowledge and data and information, but has anything ever made you wise like the Bible has? No. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. This is what Hebrews 4 talks about, the verse we read. It says the Bible is alive. It has energy. The, the Greek word is energos. It's energy. It's, it's crawling. It's living. It's breathing. We think we read the Bible. The Bible actually reads us. We analyze the Bible and critique the Bible. It's actually the opposite. The Bible analyzes, critiques, and reads us. The Bible understands us. It's like the Bible has eyes. It sees right into you. That's been the testimony. We'll look at some of them of millions of people who had discovered the gospel and Jesus Christ and the Bible. They said just that. It's like the Bible came alive. It had a power. It had a grip on me that just resonated within me. I can attest to that. Can you? Before I came under the power of God's word and the gospel, I was empty. I was guilty. My heart was cold and aloof and dead. My soul was dead. I was drowning in spiritual ignorance. And I was in chains. I was in bondage. And I longed for freedom. And you know what the Bible says? There's one in the, in the Bible that the Bible talks about. And he says, I've come so that they may have life. And he said, I came to, came to set the captives free. And to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. Freedom, liberation. If the Son has made you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, John 8, 32. That's what I so desperately long for, and in Scripture and in Christ, I found it. I found it. I long for freedom, and the Bible made good on its promise because it spoke of one who empowered it, the Holy Spirit and Christ. And so when the power of the Scripture was unleashed on me, when I came under the Lordship of Christ, I became a new creation. Old things passed away, all things became new. My habits changed, my lifestyle changed, my way of thinking changed, my patterns that were destructive changed, my perspective changed, my relationships and friendships changed, everything changed. I had unassailable joy, I found a new purpose, a new identity, a new hope. I was a new person, undeniable. But you say, come on, you're from Arkansas, Pastor the buckle of the Bible belt. And you'd be right. You'd be right. From as early as I can remember, there was a New Living Bible that my mom read every day. And my mom and dad took me to church, taught us the scriptures, taught me the gospel. I knew Jesus. That was probably one of the first words I could speak as a kid. Thank God for my mom and dad. Thanks, mom and dad. They're watching. <laughs> but what if you didn't grow? You say, so that was just a cultural thing. 
That was, it's just a Western religion, Christianity. You grew up in the Bible Belt, of course. Of course you're going to be a Christian. If you would have grown up in the Middle East, you'd have been a Muslim. If you would have grown up in Italy, you'd have been a Catholic. If you'd have grown up in India, you'd be a Hindu, and so on and so forth. See, it does kind of feel like a lecture hall a little bit, maybe. Pop quiz. Some people claim that religion is cultural or geographical. But why don't we look at some people who did not grow up in church, who didn't live in the buckle of the Bible Belt, and had a completely different worldview growing up, one that was agnostic, atheistic, one where religion was irrelevant, or maybe even considered stupid. In other words, did I believe the Bible because somebody told me to, or did I believe it because it was true? That's the question I want to answer. Because some people do claim that Christianity is a Western religion, but if you look at the Scriptures... From the very beginning, Christianity has been multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-cultural. Look at Jesus, look at his followers, look at the New Testament epistles. Jews, Gentiles, black, white, men, women, religious, irreligious, cultured, uncultured, educated, uneducated, civilized, uncivilized. Here's a quote from a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. I've read that again this week. It's an incredible book, incredibly helpful. She says, Christianity is not only the largest but the most diverse belief system in the world. Did you know that? Europe, China, North America, South America, and Africa. From the very beginning, Christianity has been multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and multicultural. The last book of the Bible paints a picture of the end of time when a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, every people and language. Hmm, what do you know about that? Not just the Bible Belt. <laughs> we'll all worship Jesus. This was the multicultural vision of Christianity from the beginning, and we see it played out in the global church today. In fact, China, who was once the global center of communism and desperately tried to hold back religion of any kind, especially Christianity. Did you know Christianity is growing so fast in China and other Asian countries that experts, sociological and religious experts, are predicting that by 2030 there will be more Christians in China than there are in America. And they're predicting that by 2060, that by 2060, China will have the majority of Christians in all the continents. Now, why is that? It's because this is true. <laughs> And this crosses cultural boundaries, ethical boundaries. Doesn't matter whether you're grown up in the Bible Belt or not. If you get exposed to this, watch out. Because it resonates with us. It's alive. It's breathing. It's powerful. It's piercing. It's true. It's gripping. You say, okay, well, seems to me like religion is maybe Christianity's for maybe intellectually weak people who can't really think for themselves. You don't see a whole lot of intelligent people, you know, it's the smart, sophisticated, university-type intellectuals that, that really understand that, oh, come on, man, this is made up. This is, you can't really corroborate this. Well, check this out. Did you know that modern science was first developed by Christians? Did you guys know that? Two 13th century Franciscan friars, Roger Bacon. Man, I love that name. It makes me hungry just saying it. Roger Bacon, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham, they laid the empirical and the methodological foundations for the scientific method. Francis Bacon, <laughs> cousin maybe, I don't know, 
Two centuries later, established and popularized it. And Robert Boyle, you know him from, from Boyle's Law, he was another key player in the development of science. Those were all devout Christians. Boyle was heavily invested in evangelism and in Bible translation. He actually considered becoming a pastor, but he thought he could serve Jesus better as a scientist. I'm glad he made that choice. Massachusetts Institute of Technology is a place where very, very, very smart and intelligent people work. And there was a Christian woman who did some research there. She wanted to know how many of these umpteen dozens and dozens, hundreds of professors share a faith in Christ. Not just who are religious, but who share a faith in Christ. And it's pretty staggering, man. I hope you don't mind a kind of a long quote. Professor Jean Kong, who grew up in China and became a Christian when she was a grad student at the University of Berkeley, California, she's a professor there, and she declares, my research is only a platform for me to, to do God's work. His creation, the way he made this world, is very interesting. It's amazing, really. Andrew Gosler, Ox Oxford professor of applied ethnobiology, became a Christian and worked there, and he's from a secular Jewish background. And he explains, my coming to faith in Christ did not rest on a single issue, such as the value of life. It was a holistic redefining of perspectives that came together through every aspect of my life. Artificial intelligence expert Rosaline Picard, who invented the field of effective computing, became a Christian when she was a teenager. Chemistry professor Troy Van Voorhees came to Christ when he was a grad student at Berkeley. Biological and mechanical engineering professor Linda Griffith became a Christian when she was already an established scientist. Also neuroscientist and former MIT president Susan Hockfield is a believer. The list goes on and extends far beyond MIT, Massachusetts Institute for Technology, to leading Christian scientists across the world. In fact, this lady says this, when interviewed, relatively few science professors at leading research universities tell stories of a faith that was lost through science. Because as you and I know, there is absolutely nothing in science that will ever disprove the Bible. Ever. Period. Full stop. End of discussion. I mean, not end of discussion. We can talk about it because we are. But don't you dare let anybody tell you, you know, only weak-minded people embrace faith in Christ. The real scientists know better. No, they don't. They don't. That's a lie. And you don't have to believe that. I got, I got so, so many more. And let, me, let me read this. One more, okay? The weakness of the claim that science has disproved Christianity is displayed by one of the most influential, influential scientists in America today. See, you're not going to hear this. You're not going to hear this in the news. This person came to faith when he was already a professional scientist, Francis Collins. Now get this. He led the Human Genome Project and now directs the National Institutes of Health. He grew up in a secular home. Religion was irrelevant. He became a graduate student at Yale, and he shifted from agnostic to atheist. Did not grow up in the Bible Belt, folks. That's the, that's the point I'm trying to make here, okay? He assumed that belief in God was rationally untenable. But his atheism was challenged during his time as a junior doctor when the faith of some of his patients seemed to give them enviable help in the face of suffering. One of his patients was dying and was untreatable. And she said, I have such joy and hope in Christ. And I have absolute confidence I'm in God's hands. And she said, what do you believe, doctor? And he said, it shocked him. He said, I, up to that point, he had never really believed. What, what world do you do I have that can make me face death and suffering? And so, 
To his discomfort, Collins realized he had never really considered the evidence for God. He engaged on a journey of exploration and research that ended in him accepting Jesus Christ as his Savior. One more quote, okay? Rebecca McLaughlin, she says, I have spent years working with Christian professors at leading secular universities and fields ranging from physics to philosophy. Some grew up in the church. Others encountered Christianity later. All have found that their faith has stood the test of their research and left them more convinced, not less, more convinced that Christianity represents our tightest grasp on truth and our best hope for the world. How about that? And some of, the, some of my favorite authors, I don't read them just because they're Christians. I read them because they're good writers. They're intelligent. They know how to spin the yarn, man, and wield a plot and do character development. I, no secret, my favorite book outside of the Bible is Lord of the Rings. J.R. Tolkien wrote it. He and C.S. Lewis were best friends. Another favorite of mine is Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote that. And it's interesting to me, man, how if Hollywood takes a story that gains some traction and popularity and they make a feature film out of it, you know what they extract from it and rub out of it? Christianity, the Christian worldview. There have been no less than five films made about Robinson Crusoe. Five films. The latest one was, it was an interesting movie. I watched it. It was Tom Hanks. Castaway, have you seen that movie? There's like nothing in there about Christianity at all. I read Robinson Crusoe twice. The whole thing is filled with Christianity. It's amazing. He's this, he's this guy who gets stranded on an island, and he, he has a Bible with him. And before he was just dismissive of Christianity, he comes to faith in Christ. Then he meets a savage on the island. He calls him Friday. And he converts him to Christ, and the whole thing is about God's sovereignty, his providence, how he orchestrates history, his love in Christ, love for your neighbor. You won't see any of that from any of those movies, so it leads us to think, like, you know, there's not a lot of people that write that were Christians. Yes, there are. So anyway, that's point number one. Um, that's not the end of that point, though. I know, I know. I got my notes mixed up, guys. I'm sorry. I'm a fallible person. I'm glad I didn't write the Bible. You couldn't trust it if I wrote it, okay? Um. <laughs> okay, here we go. What about some others? Let's look, let's look at, I just mentioned him, I think, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist at age 15. He was not brought up in a Bible Belt type of church, uh, home at all, Okay. And he went off to Oxford, and he studied, and he read, and he was very intelligent. And he had a friend, J.R. Token, who was kind of witnessing to him. And his story is in a book. It's called Surprised by Joy. And here, here's what he says. He says, I felt the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. Now, don't be thrown by what he says there, like, oh, God drug me into his kingdom kicking and screaming. What he is saying is he was reluctant because he had been wrong all of his life. But there was the book, Surprised by Joy, he was a joyful convert. He was just reluctant at the beginning because he thought, what you and I are talking about, Christianity is for people that aren't really intellectually at the top. Um, and his book, Surprised by Joy, and another book he wrote on apologetics, Mere Christianity, has been an instrument and a means God has used to help tons of people 
who have believed some of the lies I'm addressing today come to faith in Christ and put those lies aside. So Lewis was incredible. He said this. He said, talking about the Bible now, talking about the Bible, the power of Scripture. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere, Bibles laid open, millions of surprises. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. Man, this is such an interesting story, guys. Rachel Gilson. She says, I became a Christian much to my own surprise. It was as if the son of the gospel had evaporated my atheism in an instant. She grew up in an atheistic household, and she was looking like many young people are for answers, for meaning, for purpose. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What does this all mean? And she said the Christians that she knew at school gave her really incoherent answers. So she thought, okay, Christians are stupid. That's what she thought. Christians don't really have answers. They're just like blind, robotic, believe in Jesus, believe the Bible. So she just was even more dismissive. And then she became an older teenager, and she started to realize, hey, guess what? I like girls. I'm attracted to women. So I'm going to pursue that lifestyle. And she had a girlfriend, and she got heartbroken. And so she thought, you know what? I'm going to leave this little town. It's, it's kind of conservative. It makes, it, gives me the, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to go to a major progressive university where I can live out my sexual freedoms without being bothered. I'll be more tolerated there. So she did that. She went to Yale. Uh, but instead of meeting another girlfriend there, she met the friend of sinners instead. She met Christ there. And here's how it happened. This is so interesting. She was searching for things secretly on her computer because she began to get curious about Christianity. She had some friends that were Christians. And then she was in one of her friend's rooms, and she saw this book on a shelf that had a really strange title, and it was called Mere Christianity. And she said, I wasn't about to let on that I'm curious about Christianity. She said, so I stole it. <laughs> Don't you love that? You talk about God, God using evil to bring about good. She stole it. And listen, I'm, I'll guarantee you the person she stole it from has heard this by now and did backflips. Like, I, I can't think of a greater person to steal my book, you know? This atheist lesbian on the campus who's wanting to explore Christianity. And so she, she read that book and instantly, man, she, she came to faith in Christ. Her atheism was overturned. And here's, here's what she said. Let me see if I can find this quote. She said, uh, I remember thinking, well, there's some pretty significant claims in this book. I like to drink a lot. I like the excessive parts of my life. I like to be with other women. And all those things will have to go out the window. But it is stupid to pretend that what the Bible is saying isn't true just because it's inconvenient. Oh, she got it, didn't she? She got it. Lordship of Christ, under it. She said this, I need to take this because I'm never going to get an offer like this again. I had the sense right then and there that I needed to pray, and so I did. I just talked to God right then and right there. Isn't that amazing? Here's a man named, I don't know how to pronounce his name, honestly, because I'm from Arkansas. Emile? How do you say that? Emile, okay. Michelle, you know how to say it. Say it. Emile, thank you. He's French. All right. So this guy was uh, French, and he grew up in an atheistic home. He was a naturalist, which if you're a naturalist, you don't believe in anything supernatural like God, a Bible, a Savior, miracles, or a church, okay? So he grew up his entire life being a naturalist. And then when he was in his 20s, he was an avid reader. He was uh, really an accomplished philosopher. 
uh, but he got drafted into the war. So he went to the war, and what he says here uh, is appropriate. I can't read it from here. Sorry, I thought I had it in my notes. Larry told me last week when he preached, he said, Tommy, I almost died twice. <laughs> There's like a 12-foot drop here. He says, the inadequacies of my views on the human situation overwhelmed me. During long night watches in the foxholes, I had been longing, I must say it, however strange it may sound, for a book that would understand me, but I knew of no such books. You know what this guy did? He started taking, he was a teacher when he got out of the war. He went back to his university studies and he taught philosophy and other things and he would clip things out of his philosophy books that moved him, that were meaningful, that were relevant, that excited him and that comforted him. He would clip them out and put them in a leather-bound book. He said, I'm going to create a book that understands me. And so it took him years to create this book. And one day, he was home. He said he remembers the moment. He was sitting underneath the tree. The sun was shining. He got out his book that he had created that would understand him. And it fell flat because he was a changed man. He had changed. His feelings had changed. His heart had changed. And those verses' power on him had changed. And he said it was a complete letdown. He closed it. He stuck it in his pocket. And he began to just weep. And he said at that very moment, his wife came through the front gate. And she said, immediately, immediately. And she had a Bible. And she said, he said she was embarrassed and her face was red because she knew religion and, and religious books were not allowed in that house. She said, I'm so sorry. An evangelist in the city gave this to me. And he said he rose and he took it and he fled to his room. And he said he opened it up to the Beatitudes. And he said, I read like a man who was starving. He said, I read and I read and I read aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within me. He said, the scriptures, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them became alive in me. Finally, the book, finally a book that understood me. These are people that weren't looking. <laughs> These are non-Bible Belt people. And look, I'm not against, praise God for the Bible Belt. Save me a lot of heartache, right? The earlier you get exposed to Christianity and to the Bible and to Christ, the better. But these people didn't have that early exposure. This wasn't cultural Christianity to them. They were atheistic, they were agnostic, they were hostile to the Christian faith. They didn't have a Bible, they didn't want a Bible. But God was after them, wasn't he? <laughs> That's what grace is. God relentlessly pursues his people, and he captures them in love, and he frees them. He wasn't after them to put them in bondage, he was after them to free them all along. I think we may have one more here. Let me see if we got time for Jordan. Same, same concept, Jordan grew up. Uh, making fun of Christians. She thought they were dumb. Uh, she would bring a Bible that she thought had contradictions in it. It was just questions most people have about the Bible. Oh, okay, that's what that means. And she would put post-it notes in her Bible and take it, as you can see in this quote here, take it to, to school and try to make fun of Christians because nobody could answer them. And then she, she was very intelligent, smartest person in the, in the room. And so then she went to Harvard where she was no longer the smartest person in the room, and her whole identity began to crumble because she realized she had built her life on being intelligent and being smart and being creative and having all the answers. And at the university, she had no answers. She had lost her identity. She'd lost her meaning. She'd lost her purpose. So she was curious about Christianity, and so she picked up a Bible and began to read it. And she read in John 19 where Christ came and he died. And she was vaguely familiar with it, but not the details. And at the same time, she was reading a book by C.S. Lewis. Man, we're going to have to thank God for C.S. Lewis and thank C.S. Lewis for all the stuff he's done in heaven, aren't we? God gets all the glory for it. She was reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and she said John 19 was like Aslan, the lion, if you know that story, who, who died 
And she said, he died for me. I couldn't believe it. He died for me. And she said, he became my Lord and he became my Savior. So the, the point that I wanted to make was that none of these people were looking for Jesus, but Jesus found them. And to me, that is, that is, proof, that is proof that this is not just some cultural experiment, okay? This, is, this crosses the boundaries of culture and ethnicity and upbringing and worldview. It crosses all of those. It's more powerful. The Bible is powerful enough, enough to demolish those things. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says we pull down arguments. We cast them down, right? By the power and the strength of Christ. So, okay, I know my, my notes are all mixed up here, but um, let's, let's move on to the next. Let's move on to the next point now. What about what good has Christianity done in the world? Not only can we say from personal experience, but world impact. World impact. I know that a lot of people, I know that a lot of people would say, well, you know what? The Bible's done a lot of bad things in the world. A lot of embarrassing things. You got the crusades, you got the Inquisition, you got abuse. Um, some people would say inequality. Some people would say racism. Some people would tie that to people that follow the Bible. I would say that those people weren't on the wrong side of history. They were on the wrong side of the Bible. <laughs> those people did those things not because of the Bible, but in spite of the Bible. They, they changed the recipe, didn't they? They mixed it up. They added things that shouldn't have been added to it. So a lot of people use that argument and say, so, so forget your argument that, the, that religion has done anything good in the world. In fact, in fact, it's interesting that some of the books that came out the last two decades by Richard Dawkins and by Christopher Hitchens and by Sam Harris and by Stephen Hawking, is that his name? They've written books like The God Delusion and you know, Religion Poisons Everything and God is Not Great. And a lot of people read those and, and they say, yeah, this is true. This is true. What the heck? What's, what's Christianity ever done that's been helpful or good? What, what has the Bible led to in the world that's been useful? Oh, 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 I'm glad you asked. Let's look at a few things. First of all, where do you think hospitals came from? Those good intention atheists started them, didn't they? <laughs> you know, we have a, a crew of people here. Just about every month, they take a trip. Uh, usually it's down south, and they do hurricane relief, disaster relief efforts, and they are a part of an organization called Samaritan's Purse, and it's an international relief effort, and it's not started by agnostics and, and atheists and people with opposing worldviews. It's started by Christians because people believe that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that every human being has dignity and worth and value, Right? And so every person needs to be helped, and every suffering needs to be relieved if it's within our power. In fact, if you stop and you think about it, a lot of the human relief aids, if you look at the logos on all those things, check this out. Have you ever considered that? All of these are humanitarian efforts, and all of the logos have a cross in there, except for Salvation Army. I mean, it doesn't need a cross. It's duh, right? <laughs> um, the pregnancy center doesn't have one because they have to be a little more subtle because they're they're trying to evangelize and, and save lives there. And some people won't go to some people won't go to a pregnancy center that think you're going to dump the Bible on them. But we're partnered with the pregnancy center down the road here, and Christians operate that. Christians financially support that. It would blow your mind. Homeless shelters, soup kitchens, American Red Cross. There's a reason there's a cross on that. All of those hospitals. I was talking to Michelle a while back. Advent health. You know what the word Advent means? Every year at Christmas, we celebrate what season? Advent season. You know what that word means? The arrival of somebody noteworthy. 
Advent hospitals, Advent health. Who were they founded by? Christians. Christians. The Cyprian plague that broke out in the mid-400s A.D., all the Roman religionists fled the city and they left people that were affected by the plague bleeding out of the pores of their eyes, their ears. It was a horrible disease. So all the Romans that had persecuted Christians and made fun of them and mocked them, they fled the city of Rome. And guess who flocked the city of Rome? Christians did, knowing that they would catch the plague and die. Why did they do that? Because Christians are just dumb. They don't know any better, right? No, no. Christians <laughs> believe, love your neighbor as yourself. All these people bear God's image and they deserve to be helped. Christians did that. You go anywhere in the world where good is being done, and I guarantee you, you're going to find Christians on the front ranks, putting themselves in harm's way, doing radical things for the kingdom, leveraging their life for people to see the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, what about education? I'm coming to a close here, okay? That's why we couldn't get to archaeology today. Can you guys see that? Okay, I can't. <laughs> Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth. Columbia University, Brown University, Oxford, uh, that's the first one. Here's the second one. All of those, this is, I, I, I worked so hard for you because I, I want you to know this. I dug up these original seals, and you'll see something really interesting in all those seals. I'll go back to the first one. They all have books open on them. What do you think that book is? It's the Bible. All of them have open Bibles, and all of them have Latin phrases that were taken from the Scriptures. Every single one of them. It's so ironic to me. That a lot of those universities, obviously, you're not going to find that seal anywhere on their campus, probably, unless it's buried in a museum vault somewhere, because most of them have gone so progressive and liberal, they don't want anything to do with the Bible unless it's a class to critique it and try and snuff it out. But all of those universities, most of them were started as evangelical training seminaries for pastors. Did you know that? That, that blows my mind, man. That's what I think a lot of people that, that want to, oh, man. What's the word I'm looking for for history? Misconstrue. Yeah, somebody can give me that word later. Revise history. Yeah, uh, they, that's, that's like a dirty little secret to them. <laughs> Christians started universities. Christians started education. Christians started hospitals. Christians started homeless shelters and soup kitchens. Christians did all of those things. So what good has Christianity done in the world? Oh, my goodness. What good hasn't it done? If you can find something good going on in the world and usually trace it back to its source, you're going to find a Christian, a Franciscan monk, monk with the last name of Bacon or something, I don't know. <laughs> because God's Word is powerful, and it changes people, and it doesn't call everybody to be a pastor. Sometimes you can serve God better in whatever vocational calling that you're in. Okay, last thing here, if I can find this. Um. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote, wrote a book, and one of the things that she does in this book is she points out seven, yeah, here it is, all right, she points out seven benefits of biblical principles. I just want to list them really quick. Financial generosity, you know, Jesus says it's better to what? Hoard than to, no, he didn't say that. He said it's better to give than to receive. And the testimony of people, even unbelievers, are like, you know what? When I give things away to people that are in need, and just something psychologically happens, I feel really, it feels right. It feels good. It's helpful. It's, it's therapeutic. It's healing. Financial generosity has psychological payoffs. The love of money disappoints us and leaves us sad and empty, just like the Bible said it would, right? Now, that's love of money. I'm not saying money. 
love of money, greed. Viewing your vocation as a meaningful and purposeful calling from God. If, you're just, if you just go to your job every week, man, that's boring. I can't do that. If you have a career, mm-mm, I'm not in that either. I need a calling. I need a calling. When I was a carpenter, that was my calling. And then I became a Christian uh, that became a pastor, and that became my calling. If you're a Christian and, you, and you're in a vocation of some kind, that is your calling. Unless you missed it and then something else is your calling, you need to find it. <laughs> but when people, when people find their vocational calling and they see it as purposeful and meaningful, God gifted them to do it, whether it's writing, art, teaching, being a lawyer, whatever it is, being a security guard, man, that changes your whole outlook and your perspective. Being content in all circumstances reduces stress. Gratitude is good for us. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all things. Self-control and perseverance helps us thrive. Forgiveness is foundational to a healthy life without bitterness and just having resentment. Anyway, that's just a summary of all those seven things. All of those traced right back to the Bible. What good, what world impact has the Bible had? Oh my, guys, all we're doing is just scratching the surface. So today was just... That point one and point two, how do we know we can trust the Bible? Because millions of people's lives have been transformed. And not all of them were brought up in a Christian home. Not all of them were like Westerns. Not all of them were in the Bible Belt. Whether they were intelligent or unintelligent, trained or untrained, had a Bible, didn't have a Bible. And also the worldwide impact that the Bible had, this has done exactly what it said it would do. It's changed people's lives because it's alive and it's powerful and it's dynamic and it can read you and analyze you and it can show you the person that all the promises of the power are underneath and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Have you been freed by him? Have you, have you dare to say it, claim that promise by Jesus? The truth will set you free. And then he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And that's why we're here today. That's why we're celebrating. That's why we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. So let's pray. Pray with me. Lord, thank you so much for this time we've had. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to touch and taste and handle this bread, these crackers, these wafers, and this juice, Lord, to just be reminded of our salvation and to do it together as a community, to confess our sins together, Lord and to look to Christ for our hope and our help. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask our servers to come forward. And you can, uh, if you have children who have professed faith in Christ and they're in the back, our teachers know that uh, some parents are going to be coming and getting their children because they want to partake communion with their families. So you can do that at this time as we prepare the table. For being on, yeah. Thank you guys for being patient today. I wanted to get through that second point. We'll, we'll get to the next one next week, and uh, it's going to be a fun point, man. It's. I hope your. I hope your strength is faith. Is. Uh, I hope your faith in. Thank you. And and God and in the Scripture has been has been strengthened. And I hope if you have any doubts, maybe a little rock was put in your shoe of doubt today, and maybe a bigger rock next week. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is the Lord's Supper. This is communion. It's one of the three ordinances God left us with. One is baptism. It's a picture of being buried and raised with Christ. The second one is what I just did. It's 
proclaiming the gospel. And the third is communion. And this is where we see, handle, taste, and touch uh, a reminder that points us to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is for believers. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and you've believed the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and he lived the perfect life you could never live and he died the horrible suffering, sacrificial death you deserve and he did that for you. If you believe that, that he saved you and he's forgiven you of your sins, this is for you. And uh, I invite you to, to, to celebrate with us today. I invite you also to just reflect deeply on what Christ has done for you and not only that, but also that, that God continually forgives us of our sins and empowers us to, if you have a relationship that needs to be mending, a sin that needs to be confessed, a person that you need to ask to forgive you, or forgiveness that needs to be extended to somebody, this is a good time to reflect on those things and make those right. God said it's better to leave your gift at the altar and go and be restored to your brother and then come and worship. That's really important to God. So let's pray, and then we're going to distribute these elements. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. Thank you for your blood that was shed for us. God, we can be cleansed by, we come under the power of that blood. Thank you that you were broken so that we could be restored and made whole. Thank you that you were cursed so that we could be blessed. Thank you that you suffered the wrath of God so that we could receive the deliverance and the rescue of God. Pray this would be a meaningful time together as a community in Jesus' name. Amen. give you a little warning. These are uh, hard to open. So don't, if you got, if you're wearing white, <laughs> be careful you don't slosh, slosh this on yourself. This seems so irreverent to talk about <laughs> stains. Uh, this is, it's really hard to get the top cover off of this wafer too. There's two different peelings. The first one is for the wafer, the cracker here, and the second is for the juice. And we're using this just to, to take every precaution to keep you safe, to show love to our community. talking about the written word and John starts his gospel talking about the living breathing word he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and with that without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank God. The darkness has not overcome the written word. The darkness has not overcome the living word. And we have that promise. We have that hope.
Everybody get your first peeling off there. This is what the Apostle Paul said about communion when we celebrate this, the Lord's Supper. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Today, let's take the bread first. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. Let's do it together. Lord, thank you for your body being broken on our behalf so that we could be restored and made whole. Thank you for your suffering and your death, for the agony that we see depicted in the garden, for you screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the taunts and the ridicule and the mocking of, of those below, the abandonment of your friends and, and your body being shredded and torn to pieces, Lord. Thank you for your body being broken so that we could be restored. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul continues and he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's do it together. Lord, thank you for shedding your blood. The life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. That's why you, being our great high priest, came and offered yourself as a living sacrifice once and for all. And you said it's finished. And you sat down at the right hand of your Father so that we would not have to face the wrath of God. We would not have to be slaughtered, Lord, and torn to pieces and cursed by God because you are on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things. Giving you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that's a means of assurance for you. Just a reminder, every single week, the gospel is true. God is for you in Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that truth is never going to change. Hallelujah. It also says on that night that they took the Last Supper, that they sang a hymn. So you got a hymn for us, TJ? You want us to stand up? Sure. All right. Let's stand and sing together, and then we'll close out with some announcements.
the day long This is my story This is my song Praising my Savior All the day long Praising my Father God, we just praise you this morning that you have pursued us, Father. We just love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, if only the journey had been kind enough to loan us ski masks. Some of you have icicles hanging from your eyelids. Uh, we were, the goal, if you don't know our vision going forward, is Grace Life. We want to be the church filled with bank robbers. So we're trying to get the air down so everybody wears a ski mask. No, I apologize. I know it's cold. Uh, on the flip side, at the height of summer, sometimes we break the AC. And so then it's 140 in here, and everybody wears tank tops and muscle shirts. So there's really no middle ground. I apologize. We are glad you're here. We've had a lot of visitors this morning. You guys mean the world to us. I hope you come back. I hope you feel welcome here. I have just a couple of announcements. There's a men's gathering on October 21st. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to meet somewhere. <laughs> this will tell you where. We try not to advertise people's personal business and addresses, but if you scan that app, it'll take you to the, to scan that QR code, it'll take you to the church center app where you'll find the address. But we don't just care about our men. We also care about our ladies. That's why the ladies come first, October 19th two days before that, so it's a Tuesday and a Thursday, we have our ladies gathering and then our men's gathering. Those of us with kids, hopefully it's easier to babysit that way, but we'd love to have you there. Because of those two meetings, there won't be any small groups that week, but there are small groups this week, so make sure if you're not signed up with a community group yet, we have them located all around the area. Again, scan the QR code and you can find one that's convenient for you on different nights and different locations, okay? If you didn't get a Bible, please grab a Bible. There's nothing magical about the English Standard Version, but if you're like me, sometimes it is easier to follow along if the wording is exactly the same with Pastor Tommy. So please help yourself. If it's for you, great. If it's to give to a neighbor or someone else, fantastic. Questions, comments, concerns? No? Good. All right. Let's stand. Let's do our charge. Again, for the visitors, this is something we do every week. It's a uh, show of unity, and it reminds us of our purpose heading out into the world. So let's say it together. I am a witness <laughs> to neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.